Hi there, I'm Will Davis, a Freddie Mercury thermometer. And I'm Leah Richards, Galileo, Galileo, Galileo Figaro. Magnifico! Resist the temptation, we can't afford to pay for the usage rights. Oh yeah, um, well, as long as we don't do it for 30 seconds. <laughs> well, let's not tempt fate, instead let's tempt science. There's some news for everyone at home to listen to, maybe over a drink of something. Especially if it's in the evening, I know of certainly a few people who will have cracked open the beers by now on the principle that the sun is over the yard arm or it's five o'clock somewhere. But you got to wonder, who drinks the most? Who drinks the most out of everybody? Let's go for Europe to start with. Who drinks the most out of Europe? I know some Eastern Europeans who are real keen on their hard liquor. I did read recently that a lot of the alcohol consumed in Russia and Eastern Europe isn't actually alcohol so much as it is perfume, but according to research from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, or NUTNU for short, Britain, Ireland, and Portugal drink the most. But also, the richer you are, listener, the more likely you are to have a quick tipple as well. I mean, it's it's hard to argue with the idea that Britons might be some of the biggest drinkers in Europe, being as we are in a city so awash with cider. Literally. There is a boat full of it. Several. Which we'd highly recommend, actually, Mm. if you're ever in Bristol. If you ever fancy taking us out for an evening and getting to know the people behind the microphones, then send word to erikanocast at gmail.com. More on that later. For now, let's come back to this European Social Survey which is conducted every two years in around 30 European countries. The Nutnu Department of Sociology and Political Science conducted the part of the survey that deals with people's health and lifestyle, including drinking habits, and find that the Irish drink the most overall, whereas binge drinking is most widespread in Portugal, with Britain just sneaking in at second place. Now, the interesting thing about this year's survey is that the data collection for the section regarding alcohol consumption has been updated somewhat. The size of a standard portion of beer, spirits, wine across Europe varies somewhat from country to country and the survey has found it difficult to find a way to standardise this. But in collaboration with colleagues from more than 40 European countries have developed a questionnaire which uses flashcards illustrating units of alcohol in combination with information on the types and quantities of alcohol sold in the local area to collect some data that can actually be compared from country to country. Which, seeing as this is not the first survey, not the first year they've been doing this, they've been out for some time now, you'd think they'd have some way to standardise the data by now, but it's taken seven tries. I would assume that the alcohol consumption in and of itself was not a priority area of data collection. Probably they've got things they think are more important, like general health and well-being, income, education, literacy. And yet you can draw lines from alcohol consumption to all of those. For example, use at a young age affecting your health overall. Consumption of alcohol is directly related to several cancers. Well, I can't speak for the survey's priorities. Maybe we should let Terj Andreas Eichemo, Professor of Sociology at NTNU and leader of the research group Chain, speak in his own words when he says, Researchers in these fields haven't worked together much. 
Now, for the first time, we've been able to combine questions about living conditions, work, education, and lifestyles with specific health incidents. And he continues later on, When we compare ourselves to others, we can see what's working. And countries can shape their health systems based on systems that are succeeding in other countries. And on the subject of alcohol... You might remember that we recently covered a story where drinking energy drinks mixed with alcohol was worse for you and would make you act even sillier. It turns out that even if you just think you're drinking energy drinks and alcohol, it's worse for you and you act sillier. Because the placebo effect is real and powerful. This study from Inset Sorbonne found that despite previous studies suggesting that mixing energy drinks with alcohol can mask the effects of liquor... A trial of 154 young men found participants who believed they were drinking a cocktail, including an energy drink, such as Red Bull. Other brands are available. It's all right. We don't have to do that. We're not on the BBC. Okay, let's pound some Red Bull. (laughs) No, because that shit's nasty. It is horrible. Um, But participants who believed they were drinking vodka Red Bull measured themselves to be drunker, behaved drunker. But they did hesitate more about getting behind the wheel of a car by a whole 14 minutes because of their perceived intoxication. Of course, on another negative side of this, they were more likely to go and bother women at a party. I say bother. They used the term shut up, but what do you reckon? Two two out of three times a woman you're shutting up is bothered. I think you greatly overestimate my competence at A, approaching women, and B, chatting them up, let alone making a bother of myself. <laughs> Like, I've got lucky this once, and I'm never letting go. (laughs) The participants were told that they'd be drinking a cocktail of energy drink, vodka, and fruit juice. Now, whilst all the people in different groups receiving the same ingredients, some of them were labelled Red Bull and Vodka, a vodka cocktail, or a fruit juice cocktail. So they know there is some alcohol in there, but whether or not there's the perceived action of a Red Bull in it, that is what drives this overcompensation, this increased self-perception of intoxication and uh, bothersomeness. The lead author, Jan Cornell, does suggest that these results might have something to do with the way Red Bull market themselves. The slogan, Red Bull gives you wings, they feel may give some consumers the idea that it has some intoxicating effect rather than just being caffeinated. And one of the other authors, Pierre Shandon, the L'Oreal Chaired Professor of Marketing, Innovation and Creativity at INSED, says that beliefs that people have about a product can be just as important as the ingredients of the product itself. Regulations and code of conduct should consider the psychological and not just physiological effects of these products. Which I feel mixes into the whole attitude of brand loyalty to what you will or will not drink. Yes, it is something that has been noted before, that the effect you're expecting from alcohol is, broadly speaking, going to be the the effect you get out of it. So in a drinking culture like we have in most of Britain, where you go out on the lash at the weekend with the lads and get leery... Number two for binge drinking. That's exactly what happens. Maybe instead of advertising the actual units contained within a can, bottle or whatever container of alcohol, we should say expected tipsiness afterwards... And just say that everything will get you, you know, a bit of a buzz. So then people will come away from a big night of drinking, not wanting to get behind the wheel of a car, just thinking, "Ooh, yeah, I've got, I've got a good, got a good vibe going on," but not making a bother of themselves anymore. That might be one way of changing the mindset. I mean, one idea I personally really like is the idea of 
you know, allowing someone to have a couple of drinks in the pub when they're 16. And then you, uh, the idea being that you then learn to drink like the grown-ups do. So you sit down and you have some pints. You don't go and neck as many WKDs as you can get your hands on and start throwing up blue. Ah, uh, you see, my dad made red wine when me and my brother were little, so <laughs> it, it wasn't blue. I don't know if your dad is a useful uh, case study. I mean, he's a case study for lots of things, but possibly not for uh, self-control in alcohol consumption. On to our next story. <laughs> From the University of Copenhagen, a story that you've probably heard a lot about at some point over the last... God, it feels like forever. Eating insects as a sustainable source of food. I've done it. I've done a lot of it, actually, in my... Uh, past life as a museum employee in a science centre in Bristol, I ate a lot of bugs. I showed people that it was okay to be eating bugs, got a lot of weird looks, but when you're chomping down on mealworm muesli and caterpillar sushi, then uh, you get past it pretty quickly. And there are a lot of cultures in the world where eating bugs is entirely normal, is just what you do. You walk down the street in the market in Thailand or wherever, and someone will offer you some deep deep fried crickets, and that's just how it is. Tarantula on a stick. Anyone for tarantula on a stick? It's just not done so much in the West. One of the challenges with making this work is changing our minds about that. Maybe if we told people that locusts give you wings, they'd believe it? Locusts give each other wings. God, yeah, the video from Planet Earth 2 was terrifying. They basically figured out what makes locusts go locusty by getting the, you know, large but mostly friendly looking green cricket and poking it gently with a with a paintbrush. Agitate locust. A lot of times. <laughs> it's a population density thing. If they get basically rubbed up against and bumped into enough by fellow crickets... Do they describe they that as bothersome behaviour? Don't, but maybe they should. But the actual story from the University of Copenhagen is that cricket farming could be a sustainable way to produce animal source food, comparing cricket production in farms in Thailand to broiler chicken production, and looking at things like the conversion of feed into animal protein, which is more efficient in crickets than it is in chickens. Gotta get that protein. And lead author, PhD student Afton Halloran from the University's Department of Nutrition, Exercise and Sports says that this research is very timely. I mean, I feel like it's been timely for the last 30 years, but as there are many different stakeholders interested in farmed insects, many people see insects as a means of lowering environmental burden of animal production, and in many cases they can be comparable to meat and fish in terms of nutritional value. And there are currently around 20,000 farms active in Thailand. But still, most of the 2,000 insect species that are regularly eaten around the world are caught from the wild rather than being farmed. So this is one to work on. Coming at it from an ethics point of view, there is much less of a burden. Vertebrates are kind of the cut-off level for where ethics regulations start applying. So you could battery farm bugs. They sort of battery farm themselves. They don't need a lot of space. But, um... I mean, if the aggressive vegans can fundamentally object to, for example, wool, they will find a way to object to people eating bugs. 
fundamentalist vegans object to a lots of things. It's kind of their deal. <laughs> it's their purpose in life. But out of all the things they oppose, I guess they think they're doing their bit for the environment. And according to the new research from Warwick University, believing that you can stop climate change is a tremendous motivator to actually stopping climate change. If you believe that you can have a personal impact, then you are more likely to do things like turning down your thermostat or only putting as much water as you definitely need right now in the kettle. Possibly we should be trying harder to get this message out to people who can really make big impacts like governments and industrialists and going, do you know what? If you switch your factory process to this different one, you can save lots of energy. And also the planet. I mean, I think that just going around and making everyone the offer of would you like to save the world should really be enough to move people beyond industrial concerns really into a more proactive... Should be. But is it? Has it proven to be thus far? No. Well, has anyone been asking in quite the right way? Has it been me asking? If you would like me to go around and meet the most influential people in the world and get them to be nice, then please get in contact at EurekaNerdCast at gmail.com or find us at EurekaNerdCast on Twitter. More on that later. For now, let's cut back to Dr. Jesse Preston saying that often climate change messages try to persuade the public by increasing belief that climate change is real or through fear of its dire consequences. But mere belief in climate change is not enough, and fear can backfire if we feel helpless and overwhelmed. Have you been feeling helpless and overwhelmed lately? I mean, just generally for my entire adult life. Dr. Preston continues, It is vitally important that individuals appreciate the impact and value of their own actions for us to make a meaningful change as a whole. Seriously, though, I will sweet-talk anyone you want me to. I'll do the big puppy dog eyes at them, and they'll be like, No. Who could say no to this? Hey, guys, I've got an idea. How about... We don't blow everything up. I know, I know, it sounds crazy, but hey, do you want to be kind of rich now, or the saviour of humankind? I'm just putting it out there. Having your name on the side of a building is one thing. Having your name held up as one of the, let's say, hundred people who went out of their way to just not blow everything up and make life the Star Trek utopia we've always dreamed of, then hey. Now's the time. Isn't it sweet how optimistic and trusting this boy is? I have not learned better yet. He genuinely thinks that these bastards' self-interest can be overlooked. Well, I'd be dealing with people here, dealing with whole companies, <laughs> dealing with industrial outlooks. <laughs> It'd be a lot harder, but I, it's not just me who finds dealing with companies hard. Apparently, if there's research put out into the wider academic world that has been backed by a company there's been some kind of industrial impetus behind it as a funder or as a facilitator, then the public finding out about this research, they have their own reservations. This Michigan State University study has looked into public perceptions of science regarding research related to health risks. The initial study aiming simply to investigate the scope of the problem. And they were taking research about genetically modified foods and trans fats as their starting point, GMOs being... Still, something, A contentious issue. Yeah, which, I mean, the research has come in that, guess what, there's still one way of saving the world if we want to do that. And we do. Call me. I but, think they have, they have got to be part of the solution. 
they're in there, they're in the mix. But there's still, like you say, disagreement in the public sphere about perceptions of safety. And when research about GMOs, trans fats, is coming to them from a university, a government agency, a non-governmental organization, or a large food company, then public skepticism can be skewed quite severely one way or the other. With the large food companies having the worst perception, science that is done with a big corporate partner like, let's say, Unilever, biggest food producers in the UK, to my knowledge, then for most people, the immediate reaction on seeing that they're involved in the study is going to be, what are they trying to sell me? What do they want? What do they get out of this? Because big companies, they don't throw money away. They don't waste money. That's not how you get rich. But it is how you save the world. Again, EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com or EurekaNerdcast on Twitter. And that was 77% of participants saying that their views of this partnership scenario, they had something negative to say about whether it produced good, rigorous results, whereas if it's not involving a corporate partner, barely over a quarter. So that's a whole 50% difference from that study group. Also, John Besley points out that one of the aims is to help scientists when they're looking for ways to fund and resource their studies. With ever-increasing competition for funding and governments with anti-science attitudes reducing the amount of governmental funding available, it's, it's an important thing to consider how your funding partners are going to affect whether your research is actually listened to, even. And he says, ultimately, the hope is to find some way to ensure quality research isn't rejected just because of who is involved. But for now, it looks like it may take a lot of work by scientists who want to use corporate resources for their studies to convince others that such ties aren't affecting the quality of the research. I suppose one way they could get around people being unsure of the corporate partners involved in this research is to replace the corporate partners with... Just, you know, a, a blank slate, a tabula rasa, someone who has no vested interest, but is just going to get the job done. I'm not saying that we should robocop the boardroom or anything, but if you do want to defend your job against a robot, then you better be bloody charming about it. I mean, given the story we covered a few weeks back about artificial intelligences learning our bad habits from being taught through big stacks of human-produced literature and similar... I don't think corporate robots are really what I want in my life. Now you've said the phrase corporate robots, I'm flashing back to just lots of System of a Down videos, lots of MTV2, circa about 2008, 2009. That really dates you, you know that, right? Anyway, robots taking your jobs? More close than you think. Especially if, I mean, if you're a driver, a taxi driver... It might already distance. have happened if you're mm. a supermarket cashier. But if you do want to defend yourself against the robot onslaught, then having a position that relies on human personality and interacting with other human personalities seems the best way to secure yourself. And this is research coming to us from the University of Houston. Researchers found that people who are more intelligent and who showed an interest in arts and sciences during high school are less likely to fall victim to automation, and that higher education does have some impact, but the really important factors in how well you fare in this changing, more automated labour market are personality traits, intelligence and vocational interests. If you do something niche, you're less likely to be replaced. Giving a few examples here, 
Rodica Damien, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Personality Psychology at the University of Houston and lead author of the study, says that robots can't perform as well as humans when it comes to complex social interactions. Humans also outperform machines when it comes to tasks that require creativity and a high degree of complexity that is not routine. As soon as you require flexibility, then the human does better. And by preparing more people, at least more people will have a fighting chance, she concludes. And I really wish she hadn't ended the press release about having a fighting chance against the robots, because that is the start of Terminator. I mean, we know the secret to making sure that the robot revolution like ends well, right? Is John Connor. No, no, it's to make sure that we're good enough people that we teach our AIs good habits. You know how every episode for like the last three or four times I've been apologising to the future? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a robot, I'm not made of metal, I'm not even made of plastic. Because, I mean, looking at me you wouldn't think, oh, that there is a artificial man. I am much too porous for that. <laughs> I, Osmos. Sure. But until we can welcome our glorious robot overlords, we are stuck with our squishy little human bodies. But it's getting harder and harder to keep that up in a world that features, and I quote, dangerously thin body ideals put forward by mannequins, of all things. Well, if the models taking the clothes down the catwalk are horribly, horribly thin, which they often are, then why not the plastic people showing the clothes in the shop? Because it's only the female ones. Or at least that's what the research led by Dr. Eric Robinson from University of Liverpool's Institute of Psychology, Health and Society has noted when they've been surveying fashion retailers on high streets in the UK. The researchers assessed body sizes of male and female mannequins using visual rating scales. And there is a picture attached to this press release so you can see exactly how emaciated the female mannequins tend to be. I mean, in the grand old tradition of Barbie's unrealistic proportions... Most fashion mannequins you'll find in the women's wear section of a high street clothes store tend to be taller than the average human woman and thinner than the average human woman. I highly doubt that in any shop that isn't specifically advertised as a plus size shop, you would find any mannequin bigger than about a size 12. And even that would be an outlier. Bearing in mind, the average British woman wears a dress size 16. Well, they don't want to make dresses that, you know, most people could wear. No, why on earth would you do that? Well, according to this study, published in the Journal of Eating Disorders, Eric Robinson notes that ultra-thin ideals encourage the development of body image problems in young people, and we need to change the environment to reduce emphasis on the value of extreme thinness. We are, of course, not saying that altering the size of high street fashion mannequins will solve the body image problem, but what we are saying is presentation of ultra-thin female bodies is likely to reinforce inappropriate and unobtainable body ideals. So as a society, we should be taking measures to stop that type of reinforcement. It is something that has been looked over and covered by a great many people is a better representation of the diversity of body types that there is, that exists in the world, helps, uh, helps everybody to embrace and feel good about whatever it is they've been stuck with because, I mean, the body you've got is what it is and it's not easy to change it. In some cases it requires vast quantities of unnecessary surgical intervention. So if we can avoid people feeling that they have to do themselves harm to fit into some imaginary ideal 
let's do that. Well, speaking of representation and embrace, that leads on quite nicely to our next study, which does make use of a very modern portmanteau in liberal application. Bromance flourishes thanks to changing anti-gay sentiment. Bromance specifically being intimate but platonic friendship between two men. I feel like the phrase platonic friendship was there first. Plato was really into that. That's why it's called that. I mean, he was also not straight, so... He also wrestled a lot of dudes. Like, just to prove a point, if they were arguing with him, he would throw down. <laughs> I mean, he he was an Olympic wrestler. As in the Olympic. Yeah, the, one that the old ones. The one that there was at the time. Yeah. Just that one Olympic they had. The old ones, where you had to be naked to do it just to make sure you're not a woman. How times have changed. Including, recently, a decline in homophobia, apparently, which has allowed young men to embrace the benefits of a non-sexual bromance with close male friends. Well, I think with the fact we can uh, go out for pride covered in rainbows and not immediately get beaten up, homophobia has declined. For us here right now. For us here right it's, you know, I'm not saying it's over, but the average human being on Earth has a less negative view of same gender attraction than they would have done 20 or 30 years ago. Well, according to Stephen Robinson at the University of Winchester, this deep emotional and sometimes physically intimate friendship with other men, the bromances that there are, is helping them open up about their concerns about their relationships, their stresses, their worries, things that they seemingly don't feel comfortable sharing with even their other intimate partners in straight-paired relationships, but that having the, like you say, this platonic support, friends who they trust and invest in the relationship with, then that opens up a lot of ways for them to express their emotions, express their fears, express even different identities than within the confines of a straight heterosexual relationship. And hopefully this will do some good to reducing the fact that suicide is the number one killer for men under 50, which is often as a direct result of a culture that tells you to just bottle up all of your emotions, just put them in a box, never look at them, never talk about them. Yeah, just boys don't cry. Just put it away. Boys don't feel, right? That's how that works. That's what a boy is, except it's not. Like the robots, but even less charming. Like the robots, but with too much Lynx body spray. Weaponized. Could you class Lynx as a chemical weapon? Yes, yes, you could. Well, Robinson adds that the absence of sexual attraction distinguishes these men as heterosexual to both themselves and others, and shows that men share a progressive understanding that love can exist between two people without the need or requirement for sex with each other. I mean, yeah, if you're investing heavily in these relationships, then maybe you don't need to worry about being perceived as gay. Not so long ago, here in England and America, and even still in some places in England and America, people would point at people of the LGBTQ community and say that we were going to be the cause of the end of all life on Earth, that we would bring down divine wrath and we would drive extinctions. Yeah, it was only two years ago one of those UKIPers was saying we were causing the floods. I wish we could control weather. That would be so good. I would deliver localised rainstorms to so many people if that power were available. Anyway, the end of life on Earth. According to new research from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and a team of researchers in the University of Calgary, how life escaped the greatest extinction in the early Triassic comes down to 
short-lived communities of organisms that provide refuge for other organisms around them in subaquatic scenarios. Now, this extinction particularly is the one that happened at the end of the Permian era, shortly, at least in a geological sense, before the rise of everyone's favourite prehistoric megafauna, the dinosaurs. I say everyone's. There's, there are people who will disagree with me, but I'm the sure. most popular prehistoric megafauna. Um, and it's believed that this was caused by a combination of climate change and volcanism. Um, 90% of the species in the ocean died just went extinct, were wiped out, never to be seen again. So it is impressive that anything escaped it at all. Disaster taxa, opportunistic organisms that thrive while others go extinct, provide this niche, this little hidey hole for anything around them to survive in. And by providing this, what the uh, authors term, an ephemeral refugia, then communities could start to build of organisms... They start to redevelop into, like you say, this biological explosion a couple of million years later. Well, it is what happens when the slate is wiped clean. Everyone else has the opportunity to really go hog wild on that evolutionary experimentation. Just try out everything. Everyone gets a chance. Again, an apology to the future, because chances are there will be some crab people who have now discovered MP3 technology who can understand this. We are glad you have found our podcast out there in the future. We're sorry that we're not around to meet you, but when the charming robots came, there really was nothing we could do. I'm going to be honest, I think the crab people might be quite pleased we're not around to meet them. Like, if they've listened to the rest of this, they'll know that humanity as a whole can be kind of terrible. Like, I want to believe as a species we're not fundamentally bad, but... I should have a useful way of refuting that, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of us are good. We try. Lots of us are good. Lots of us are trying. There's still bumholes. Like, real, proper, absolute, utter, utter, utter bumholes. On that charming note, move on to the last of our long stories for you today. I hope it's going to just cool everyone's tempers a little bit. We've talked about extinctions and robots and homophobia. Let's just chill out with something a little bit cosy. Nice warm wools. So you know how I was saying earlier about how the hardcore vegans will try and claim that wool is a bad thing? Here's my argument for why wool as a product, as a farmed product, is not inherently bad. Sheep are basically a sort of goat that we did a whole bunch of domestication on. And they aren't able to shed their woolly coats when the weather gets warmer. They physically cannot. There are ancient breeds of sheep that do shed, but most of the modern breeds we use for wool and for meat and for and for milk don't have that capability. So they have to be shorn. There was, for example, a ram, I believe he was living in Australia, who escaped the ranch before shearing time. And when they found him six years later, he was carrying around a whole nother ram and a half just in fleece. It is necessary to shear wool-bearing animals. That, like, they don't enjoy it in as much as, you know, a small squirmy toddler doesn't enjoy a haircut, but it is necessary. And once we've got it off the sheep, it's really useful stuff. I'm going to restrain myself because I could I could really go off on one about what good, good stuff wool is. Uh, but the, the story, the story that we're covering. Alpacas 
which are also a wool-bearing animal. Relations of llamas, like a, a compact, fluffier llama. Still quite bad-tempered in the style of camelids in general, but more compact and softer. The University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna has monitored the stress levels of alpaca while they're being shorn. They don't enjoy it. There are ways to mitigate this. For example, if an alpaca can be trusted not to resist being restrained, they can be shorn standing up, which is pretty much fine. If not, then a mattress on the ground or a tilt table help mitigate the increase in stress levels as much as we're able to. But the important thing is, they do need to be shorn. I'm going to jump in with just a quick mention of the methods for this. The stress levels of the alpacas being shorn, be they standing or on the tilt table, were measured using clinical parameters such as heart rate and stress hormones. Do you know where you detect stress hormones from alpacas? Well, senior author Suzanne Weiblinger of the Institute of Animal Husbandry and Animal Welfare tells us that the stress hormone cortisol is detected through a laboratory analysis of saliva and faeces. It is a real dedication to animal welfare, if you think about it, that someone is willing to take the time and effort and clinical resources to find out how stressed an alpaca was by looking at their dung. I mean, it's, it's a herbivore, it's mostly grass. Now, they did note a few differences between the animals that were restrained or not. According to Thomas Wittick, first author from the University Clinic for Ruminants, body temperature was unchanged for animals that were restrained without shearing, but if animals were restrained and also shorn, clinical values changed significantly in the animals that were restrained on the floor or on the table. For all restraining methods, body temperature remains unchanged. Apparently, this sets alpacas apart from sheep or the vicunia. Another compact woolly camelid. These ones produce a super, super fine wool, which the Inca used to wrap their king's mummies in. I think you can only harvest them about every seven years or something. They're mostly wild. They're not really farmable. You have to actually go up the mountain, find the vicunia to collect the wool. Well, on that surprisingly anthropological note, I think it's about time that we wrap this episode up with maybe just one or two more quick stories to tide you over until our next episode, such as the, I mean, very self-explanatory title from Michigan State University that climate change, tornadoes, and mobile homes are a dangerous mix. Climate change causes more tornadoes, and more people in the US own and use mobile homes. Therefore, danger. And one which really oughtn't surprise anyone, especially seeing as we've talked about it before, more research saying that marijuana use is tied to poorer school performance. Surprising who? No one who's been listening to our podcast for more than about three months. Let's leave the smoke clouds and tornado trails for another episode. If you do have any questions or comments, again, you can find us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter, or send us an email at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. Any comments or reviews on iTunes would be welcome. Until next time, I've been Will Davis. And I've been Leah Richards. Bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. I always wondered if he was a hologram. Turns out he's a robot from the future. If I was a robot from the future, would I be this charming? Yes. Yes, you would, because the robots have to get charming to get the rest of the jobs, goddammit!
I need to go. Anyway, the end of life on Earth.